Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 27th, 2023. Regular viewers and listeners to Keenon know that I have another life um, in which I am the uh, interviewer for a, a long-running show called How to Fix Democracy. It's been going now for five or six years. We've, do, we've done all sorts of interviews with remarkable people, including Madeleine Albright back in 2020, former American Secretary of State. Uh, unfortunately, Madeline is no longer with us. Uh, we did a, a show back in 2022 with Margaret Atwood, perhaps the world's leading writer, particularly when it comes to uh, politics and history. Um, another one with Maria Ressa, who won the Nobel Prize uh, for peace. So I, she's an old friend of mine. We interviewed her for How to Fix Democracy back in 2020. And then another Nobel Prize winning laureate, Angus Deaton, who, who teaches economics um, at uh, uh, Princeton University, is the author of Death of Despair. And Deaton came up a couple of weeks ago when I talked to Carol Graham, um, a Brookings uh, Institute uh, researcher on um, the science of well-being and its implications on democracy. Uh, Carol has a new book out, The Power of Hope. She's concerned that a lot of people have lost hope, which accounts for our crisis of democracy. And indeed, over the weekend on Keenon, we had the NYU law professor, Sam uh, Samuel Itacharoff, uh, who has a new book out, Democracy Unmoored. So we're familiar, or I'm familiar with the crisis of democracy, uh, both on Keenon and off Keenon. Uh, the show I do is called How to Fix Democracy, but of course it implies that uh, we need to save democracy. And my guest today has a new book out, an edited volume of thoughts about how to save democracy. His name is Eli Merritt, and he's put together some interesting quotes from this book in association with a group called Represent Us. Eli is joining us uh, from just around the corner in San Francisco. Eli, um, tell me a little bit about the background to how to save democracy. I assume that you, uh, you feel that democracy is in mortal threat. I, I do think that a democracy is an extraordinary threat, and I'm always uh, working myself to learn more about what can be done and look at models outside the United States, in particular at this time of crisis. So when this, this book is based upon uh, quotations by 95 world leaders from the first summit for democracy, which took place in December of 2021, and the second summit's coming up here in just a few days. So I went there initially to learn uh, what ideas I could glean from the summit. But when I began to notice there was a bit of poetry to at least uh, some of the things that the world leaders were saying, I was reminded of my reliance, uh, not infrequently, on thoughtful and sometimes poetic uh, inspiration and learning from uh, Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln, and others. 
So I just began to take notes and, and Biden had said, make this a year of action. And so I took it a bit seriously and decided to put these together. They were helpful and inspiring to me. And I thought they might be helpful and inspiring to others. As we speak, Eli, there seems to be maybe even potentially civil war brewing in Israel, another place with some sort of demagogic or populist crisis of democracy. For you, what is the crisis? Why is democracy a mortal threat around the world? Well, uh, let me speak to the United States first, and I think there's a lot in common, but I do think democracy is threatened in different ways in different places. Uh, but it would be universal to say that we, there's lots of threats going on. Uh, I think the most essential threat uh, that's taking place in the United States now is disinformation. I won't stop with that, though. Disinformation about election results. And the reason that specific area of different disinformation is so vital and so threatening is for reasons that are somewhat obvious. But the, but the way I have, law, have long thought about it is it's somewhat of a natural law of democracy, that democracies depend upon elections, and elections depend upon trust, and trust depends upon truth. So this the poison of disinformation we have running through the bloodstream is, is pernicious in all cases. But in particular, as, we're, as we've seen for years, and we're seeing today and yesterday with Trump's speech at Waco, and his comments with, with relationship to the uh, possible pending indictment from the Manhattan District Attorney, it is disinformation about election results. And I could say otherwise, a breakdown of ethical infrastructure within all manner of, uh, of democratic institutions in the United States. Back in 2021, you wrote a, an op-ed in the New York Times asking whether the founders would convict Trump and bar him from office. As you said, we have more and more stuff on Trump. He hasn't gone away, for better or worse. He's becoming increasingly, I think, rather boring, a parody almost of himself. Charles Blow writes in The Times about uh, this Waco, Texas speech, that the rally was just what I expected. He's stuck in a rut. And um, David French suggests that uh, out, of, out of Waco, Texas, that it's the MAGA movement, the populist movement, not Trump, that controls what's happening to what extent is the issue, uh, Eli, today about Trump or something broader, this angry mob, the mob that, according to at least Carol Graham, has, uh, uh, has lost hope in democracy? I do not blame what we can call the mob or the MAGA base in the least. Uh, these are individuals, people who have been deceived and deluded from on high. They have been demagogued and demagogued and demagogued. And that's in some ways my favorite subject. It's the thing I've written the most about is the intersection of demagogues and democracy. So I hold indeed Trump very accountable, but not even as much as I hold accountable the Republican party and in order of importance, the news media and social media. There, there is such a thing as leadership within democracies. And I hold the leaders of democracies to be responsible not this, again, based... Then, Eli, Eli, you need to be a little bit more specific. Are you treating these people like children? You're suggesting they have no agency and th they should be able to see for themselves. And you had an LA Times piece about um, democracy survival depending on fighting de demagoguery and you suggest that the GOP is embracing them. Mm -hmm. You're talking to me up the road from San Francisco. Aren't you just yourself 
a representative of a certain <laughs> elitist wing of the Democratic Party, perhaps like myself. I mean, wh where's the if, if you're writing off half the people in the country and one of the two major political parties, where are, are, are you going with this argument? Oh, I'm not writing off the people. And I think we're all uh, subject to demagoguery. So I think that citizens who spend most of their time working their jobs and not studying the news on a deep level, perhaps increasingly in the culture we live in today, I do believe they're being taken advantage of. I don't think of them as children. So I, children, I think of them as human beings who are being deluded. It's pretty obvious that plenty of elites are, have also been caught in this trap of disinformation and demagoguery by Trump. So by no means. Am I an elite? I don't know. Someone else can judge that. But I do think I do. I do deeply believe that we must have ethical gatekeepers of democracy who understand what their job and what their mission is. And one of those jobs and missions that has been demonstrated to be essential from time immemorial, meaning at least in the Western tradition, since uh, Athens is ethical infrastructure and ethical gatekeepers must keep demagogues and authoritarians out of positions of power. When demagogues and authoritarians get into power, I think of it as the metaphor of the sledgehammer. They immediately go about breaking down the democracy in order to remain in power. This is a truth that's been part of democracy. We, we haven't been paying attention to it too well in our culture for some decades or even centuries, but now is the time to wake up and understand what demagogues do to democracies and when they get in the White House, they do transform and worsen into authoritarians. And that's what we're witnessing. Your definition, though, of, of demagogues is itself, I don't know, maybe perhaps a little soft. I mean, is, is Netanyahu a demagogue? Isn't this a word we simply use when we don't like the person? Trump was legitimately elected. He was president. I don't quite know if he was a particularly good president. In many ways, of course, he was rather shameful. But he was president for four years. Was he a demagogue? He left office uh, without violence. Perhaps he called on some degree of violence in January 6th, which was a farce. So what makes Trump a demagogue? Well, I would go so far as to say uh, that Trump is a a demagogue that can and perhaps will be studied for hundreds of years to come as the embodiment of what this difficult sometimes to define as you're describing uh, entity is of a demagogue. But there's no doubt, like most conditions, like most personality, like most personality disorders, that the demagogue does exist on a spectrum of zero to 10. But if you get up to high level demagoguery or mega demagogue like Trump, what so is he at a 10 on your on your scale of demagoguery from zero to 10? Is Trump a 10? He's a 10. Now, there's also an authoritarian aspect to him, and that might have a different scale. But, but then why is he a 10? Is it because he says things that aren't true? Is it because he promises stuff he can't deliver? Is it because you don't like him? <laughs> no, I don't dislike Trump. I, I, you know, I dislike what he's doing to, you know, I practiced psychiatry for 20 years. So I learned to sit in the room with all sorts of folks. And what's important, you can't help somebody if you don't feel compassion and understanding towards them. So it's not disliking and everything you've just said is true of demagogues. But what you really find, it, two things I, I would say is that the demagogue uses speech that is based in bigotry, fear mongering, hate mongering and scapegoating in order to pursue power and fame for oneself. 
Now, again, all politicians have some of that, but ultimately most of our presidential leaders in the country, the vast majority, have understood that there are supreme authorities above them uh, and they must conform to those supreme authorities. So that's another instance. What does that mean? I I don't get it. Supreme authorities above them. You mean God? (laughs) No, I don't. I mean the Constitution and uh, constitutional political norms and democratic values. So the demagogue, you know, Huey Long, of course, you know, he said, I am the Constitution around here. So that's an attitude that is uh, very prevalent within the demagogue. And obviously, and the demagogue once gets drunk on power, worsens into authoritarianism. Alexander Hamilton has written about that in Federalist One. Oh, seriously, Andrew, I got to tell you, the demagogue is something we must take seriously. You are right. It's sometimes hard to define. It is sometimes hard to detect early on. But we have had right now in the past six years, the greatest history lesson a nation could have on what a demagogue is and what a, what damage a demagogue well, does. That may be true, but if that was a great history lesson, a lot of people don't seem to be paying much attention. Trump is now favorite probably to win the Republican nomination. It seems as if um, Ron DeSantis is a paper tiger at best. It's quite conceivable that Trump will be reelected. So are you suggesting that most Americans don't get it, that they're ignorant, that they're biased, or they've simply been seduced by this demagoguery? Two things. They, they, a lot of Americans are being seduced by this demagogue. Absolutely. That's the great art of the demagogue is to seduce people into sort of baser uh, motivations and baser uh, actions. Um, but also our democracy is poorly structured right now. And I'll just name one way that I believe that to be true. The presidential nominating system is a failed system. There are no checks and balances in our system against the rise of demagogues and authoritarians. As you know, we reformed the way we nominate presidents back in the early 1970s for a lot of reasons that you know had some good intentions. But ultimately, political parties in our country, they have been the number one gatekeeper source, checks and balances source, to make sure that we don't advance demagogues and authoritarians into the general election. So uh, we've got a lot of problems in the way. So how, uh, so how let's use Trump as an example. Yeah. He, he won the nomination legitimately. Um, what, what laws would you pass or how would you change the system to make sure, at least in your mind, that Trump couldn't be elected? Would you ban him from office? Or would you ban men like Trump? And who's to determine who, who determines whether or not people like Trump can or can't run? Great question. And I I wouldn't pass a general law to ban people like Trump from uh, running for office, but I certainly would have as a senator of the United States in 2021 in February, have voted to permanently ban Trump from from office after convicting him in the Senate. So that is the place of, of, of great pain that I have. One of the darkest days in our democracy is when we didn't achieve an extra 10 senators, 10 senators necessary in order to uh, disbar yeah. Trump permanently for, from office. But uh, you don't have to pass any laws. This is all within the political parties. The political parties operate themselves. They do not have to have direct primaries where you're electing the president, the, the presidential candidate, for example. Our, 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 our presidential nominating system has been organized in many different ways. The, the people of a party can also nominate the delegates and the delegates go to the convention. We need levels. Representative democracy is the thing that works. Direct democracy does not, as history shows. So you need democracy, 
checks and balances, democracy checks and balances, we know that from the way our government works, checks and balances are as important as free and fair elections. They are. It, it sounds to me like you want to go back to some sort of elitist, smoke-filled room, uh, 18th century version of American democracy. So the wise and the virtuous should exclude men like Trump from office. But he has enormous support. Uh, there are various crises in America. We've talked with Martin Wolf, for example, about this increasingly problematic relationship between capitalism and democracy. He has a new book out, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. As I said, um, mm -hmm. Carol Graham was on the show talking about the, the death of, 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 of hope in America amongst certainly white working class Americans, the power of hope. How would you address these things? But if you simply ban the Trumps from running, that's only going to make the 20, 30, 40% of Americans who feel excluded from the system, even angrier, even more resentful, even more potentially violent. Well, I'm, I'm not going to ban uh, anyone from office. I'm going to restore uh, the power to political parties who hopefully, Andrew, will not, uh, be, uh, will not be white males from the 18th century. Hopefully, they will be 21st century Americans from all economic classes and all races and backgrounds. So I do think there is way except white working class people who support Trump. Oh no! Well, of course, have them in. People don't always act well, the same. That's way. very generous of you. Let's talk specifically about your 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 seven key principles that you lay out in the book for democratic success. Perhaps briefly, Eli, you might go over them. Oh well, you just had them up. Uh, 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 I mean, pick one or two of them that you think are particularly important in terms of re-architecting or strengthening American democracy? Well, if you want to talk more about the, 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 the reforms to the presidential nominating system that we should embark upon, I'm happy to do that. I, I noticed right there a couple of things is the, the importance of the rule of law and the importance of folks finding a way to get involved. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing right now, in fact, a, a rather awesome and tragic interaction between disinformation uh, and the rule of law, the way Trump is talking about Alvin Bragg, the way I sometimes will turn on Newsmax and Fox News for, for, from an anthropological perspective, the way that the just lies about lies. So we're having an extreme, extreme weakening of the rule of law. And I, what we can do right now, where the Republican Party is part of the disinformation and demagoguing of the rule of law, is hard to know and hard to detect. But on everyone getting involved, I would say this. There is the, one of your the books you put up, Andrew, related to hope. There is a lot of hope for our democracy. And I would say the number one area of hope in our democracy today is the Democratic Party. It does happen in the right. world. And then you, it sounds like you're just making a party political broadcast, which is fair enough. But why hide behind all the stuff about representation? I mean, you're, you, you published this book with Represent Us. Are, are, are you simply suggesting that America should become a one-party state, a, oh, a, a state of for the for the Democratic Party of politicians and representatives who you approve of? No, 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 no. You're misunderstanding. Um, it the the uh, we need a strong conservative party in this country and a strong uh, liberal party. That's been shown. It's it's necessary. So I'm, I'm by no means that would be more dangerous than we are right now. I think to have one party. But the Democratic Party is the party that is demonstrating 
uh, hope and standing behind the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And let's remind ourselves, I'm not predicting civil war, but let's remind ourselves of the 1850s when one political party, the Republican Party, stood behind the essential question of that day, which was blocking the expansion of slavery into the Western territories. And the Democratic Party became corrupt and ultimately the Republican Party triumphed. I do believe that the Democratic Party is the party now that stands the greatest hope of maintaining an ethical rudder moving forward and hopefully pushing us through this period of demagoguery and disinformation we're in right now. What happens? I mean, so so you're right. The Democratic Party has managed to cobble together an unusual alliance, I think, of coastal elites, of wealthy coastal elites like you and I and um, ethnic minorities of one kind or another, African-Americans, Hispanics, who are, and, and Carol talked about this, reasonably positive. It's interesting in America that um, African-Americans, Hispanic Americans are much more positive, even if they're part of the working class, than white Americans. Mm. Um, so what becomes of the, the, the Republican Party if it's no longer the, if you're not the party of hope, does that, in your view, uh, Eli, exclude you from democracy? Can't you be a reactionary? Can't you be miserable? Can't you be pessimistic and still maintain a, a role, a place in a democratic system? Well, I hadn't thought of things quite that way, Andrew, but of course you can. We need to accept all people where they are. But uh, what I'm saying is that all Americans, including uh, the folks who currently form the MAGA base, they need a better option. They have a terrible option out there right now. The well, they don't think it's a terrible option. They love Donald Trump. Are you uh, telling them they can't have it? It sounds like you're treating them like children. You're saying, well, you love this thing, this chocolate, this candy, but you can't have it. It's not good for you, so I'm going to give you something else. Well, I'm saying something like that, but not quite in the, in the judgmental, condescending manner that you're putting it. I am saying that it's just a truth of democracy. It's a natural law, even if you or others want to deny it, that if you put demagogues and authoritarians in power, you're going to lose your democracy. So if you want to say, well, I think that the concept of the people or the MAGA base electing who they want and not having other options, such as a sound, ethical, conservative party, if you want to say, well, my highest priority is the people voting in all cases for whom they wish with no checks and balances, well, then I'd say have at it. Well, you're going to destroy a democracy. You won't have a democracy. What so happens, Eli, and, and this seems not inconceivable, as if the majority of Americans simply give up with their faith in democracy. They say it doesn't affect me. It's hopeless. It's full of corrupt politicians. Nothing ever changes. Mm -hmm. so we're going to vote for candidates or for parties who are uh, indifferent and sometimes hostile to democracy. Is that... Is that a, a legitimate opportunity to shut the whole thing down, to say, look, the majority of Americans no longer believe in democracy, so we're going to close it down and add, I don't know, direct democracy or authoritarian or demagogic democracy, whatever you want to call it? I suppose anything is an option. We can't predict uh, the future. Excuse me, but... Uh... I don't think that's what Americans want. I don't think we're going there. And if that's what, if that's the direction we go, then yes, we of course we could become an authoritarian state if that's the case. I mean, that seems to be what's happening in Israel between two groups of people who are who share absolutely no 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 truths about the world. They 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 represent entirely different worlds. It seems as if America's going that way too, for better or worse. 
perhaps. One advantage that we have, which is part of the strengthening of, uh, of the, the forces moving towards hope, is we have a long history of fighting for democracy and refinding our faith and refinding our hope. We have a history which I think probably right now is pretty important to look at, that in the founding period, uh, authoritarianism, tyranny set itself upon us, and the decision was made to fight back against that. So if we lose that spirit, of course, we will become a, a dreary nation of conformist, quiet, non-free people. Uh, but we have to just keep keep alive and keep fighting for it. That's why I do believe uh, that I, I don't judge the Republican Party for any of their policies, not one. I, I don't really care about policy in the least, Andrew. I care about two parties hopefully acting together to sustain an ethical constitutional democracy instead of one. But in the case where one is doing it alone, it's all the more important that that party keep its foundations and not succumb to the same skullduggery and, uh, and disinformation and, dis and demagoguery of the other, because we know we'll lose a democracy if we have no parties that are standing for the truth and for free elections. Eli, um, as I said, you've written this book in association with Represent.us. Um, the introduction is written by Joshua Graham Lynn, who um, is the co-founder and CEO of Represent Us. Tell me a little bit about what, what Represent.us is. Well, I think that their area of greatest strength and success is they take the attitude or approach that we've got all manner of problems in our democracy and they don't have a lot of faith that they can be solved from the top down, meaning federal down to state. So they work hard uh, to reform from the state level in the hopes that when uh, they meet with success uh, uh, in the reforms they're promoting, that they will potentially be laboratories, this concept that you're well familiar with, they will be laboratories that the rest of the nation uh, can learn, learn from. Let's end with some thoughts on on the on the book it's um it's a book um about uh how to save democracy it comes from advice and inspiration from 95 world leaders who attempted who, who attended this um uh summit for democracy back in 2021 as you know this there was a lot of criticism of the summit uh eli uh, a lot of Undemocratic people were, were invited, including Duterte of the Philippines, who tried to put my friend Maria Ressa in jail. Oh. Is this an appropriate, in your view, an I mean, I assume you assume, I assume you believe it is. But was, is this the right kind of venue where people like Duterte showed up? And I think that uh, 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 Orban was there as well. A lot of quasi-Democrats at best. Is this the right venue to... To, uh, to develop nuggets of wisdom about how to save democracy? Well, your criticisms are very just, and, I, and nobody knows the formula that the Biden administration uses to determine who should be admitted and, or not. But certainly it's a very imperfect summit, and the one coming up will be imperfect as well. Folks there will may, might deteriorate in, in, a, in a direction of corruption or authoritarian and that we're, we're not aware of at the very time. But I'd say two things. Certainly, uh, it's possible that some folks who we might hold a negative judgment might have something wise to say that could be helpful. But more important than that, uh, it's 95 world leaders of quotations in this book, and there were 110 or so there. So there were definitely some people who were left out of the book for precisely the reason you're describing.
who um so so perhaps you might cite one or two of the observations in the book what are your favorite uh remarks in uh, how to save democracy uh well the favorite advice and inspiration right. perhaps you know pick two or three both uh both sensible advice and inspirational of world leaders of the 95 world leaders who attempted the uh the december 2021 uh, summit for democracy organized by joe biden yeah, one is, uh, I think that perhaps the most important uh, to me and to what we all can be and should be doing, it comes from the president of Lithuania who said, uh, we are gathered at this summit, all of us, in order to deepen our understanding of how democracy works and how tyranny happens. So I think that's so important, perhaps for some of the reasons that you and I have been discussing today is we make certain assumptions based on the current zeitgeist and the current culture and traditions of the society we live in. I think we have to open up a bit, for example, in this regard of that quotation, uh, the need to understand how democracy works and how tyranny happens. Free and fair elections are absolute bedrock of democracy, no doubt, but we forget there are other fundamental cornerstones too that are equally as important. And to just name a few of those, uh, I would say, um, Ethical leadership is the one that's missed the most. Democracies don't survive without ethical leadership. But I've never met a leader who doesn't claim to be ethical. I mean, what does that even mean? Oh, uh, well, we could get into that if you want, and I will. I will get into what ethical is if, if you'd like to. But the other cornerstones that are essential that we all need to recognize, it's just not a matter of citizens coming together and electing the people that they like. You also need rule of law and you need checks and balances. So I'm circling back a little bit on what I've emphasized with regard to checks and balances. Another, so there's a hard side to democracy, I think, which is the fierce rule of law, which hopefully will triumph here in the coming weeks and months with regard to, to Trump. There's also a soft side of democracy that I think we can't forget either. And I think of another quotation by uh, uh, the former prime minister of Barbados, who has the name Mia Amor Motley. And she said that the secret sauce to the democracy, their democracy is that they strive to see one another and to hear one another and to care for one another. So that's the soft side. And that might sound, uh, uh, again, too soft. But let's remember that Lincoln said basically the same thing when he said one secret of the success of a democracy is we have to live political lives with malice towards none and compassion towards all. So that's a few of the quotations I think of. Uh, uh, others, to paraphrase, are in the past democracies were overturned by military force. And now they are being overturned internally by disinformation. Finally, um, two years is a long time in world politics between 2021 and 2023. And of course, since 2021, we've had Ukraine. You mentioned one of your nuggets of wisdom was from uh, a Lithuanian politician, a huge impact of the Ukrainian invasion by Russia on uh, the Baltic states. How has the world changed, in your view, Eli, between this first summit and the second one. When's the second summit due, by the way? Uh, two days, if I'm thinking of my math right. March 29 and 30th are the days that... that okay. Uh, later this week, then. I'm actually going to D.C. tomorrow, though I haven't hmm. been invited. Um, how has the world changed in these two years since the, the first uh, summit and the second? Well, a couple of ways, I suppose. I think it's in some ways, largely the same in the United States, although I do think we have been 
beaten further and further by disinformation and demagoguery. It's not a problem we're going to solve rapidly, but I think we're more wounded and wounded by violence today, more shootings today, as in Nashville, which happened with a couple of hours ago. But of course, the big news is that Putin invaded Ukraine. And so a lot of people who are, are, are wise thinkers have different views of that. But that's a game changer there. And I really feel it's critically important, no matter the expense, that democracy, however it happens, has to have a victory there. So at this summit that's starting in two days, it will have Ukraine as a focal point in a way, of course, that it never did. You're beginning to sound like Woodrow Wilson, Eli. You're suggesting that the war in Ukraine is a war over democracy and the Western allies should get involved. Oh, no. Well, no, not get involved. They have, will have to set, they have to set the threshold for that, which has already been set, of course, by NATO. But uh, I do believe that this is the first act of territorial imperialism since World War II. And there's a great fear of a domino effect if Putin succeeds.